Oh boy, is the weather hot where you are? Because it is where I am. Uh, but I guess this is uh, this is summertime in the western United States. Anyway, welcome back to Noggin Notes. You didn't tune in for a weather report. You tuned in to help enrich your noggin on all sorts of matters related to mental wellness. And today we're talking about geriatric care as well as a, a really cool endeavor called Project Echo. Uh, Project Echo is something that I've participated in for the last couple of years uh, through the University of Nevada, and I'm going to let our guest, Mordecai Lavi talk about what Project Echo is because he literally oversees it at the University of Nevada. It's not just in Nevada, it's all across the country and in 30 different countries not named the United States. So if you're listening to this internationally, I would really recommend that after you hear Dr. Lavi talk about what it is that you go seek out your own education as well through the Project Echo program. And you can find out stuff like that in our show notes. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. As always, our sponsors are Zephyr Wellness. Find out zephyrwellness.org. Uh, I, I guess find out more at zephyrwellness.org. You won't find out zephyrwellness.org. That, that makes no sense. Jeez. Uh, Teach people to communicate for a living, and I can't even talk into a microphone. <laughs> anyway, um, ZephyrWellness.org. That's our that's our mental health outpatient agency in Northern Nevada. We're really proud of what we're doing here. Go there, find new stuff. We're always producing new content, like podcasts and YouTube videos, and posting in inspirational things on Instagram. We're also sponsored by Audible. And if you don't know about Audible's totally unmatched selection of audio content, you should go to audibletrial.com slash notes. Help us out by signing up for a free 30-day trial and getting a free audiobook with your 30-day trial. You get to keep the audiobook even if you cancel. And it's a great way to expand your knowledge base. And like I've said before, if you're listening to a podcast, then audiobooks are probably right up your alley. Listen to you while you drive, while you're mowing the lawn, uh, making dinner, uh, telling your kids to pick stuff up and put it away. <laughs> Any Anything you can think of that uh, goes on a mobile device and has headphones, you can you could probably put an audiobook on it. So check out Audible, audibletrial.com slash notes, and uh, give us your support. Without any further delay whatsoever, this is my interview with Dr. Mordecai Levy on the Naga Notes podcast. Enjoy. Well, listening audience, on this episode of Naga Notes, we are interviewing Dr. Mordecai Levy, who is a medical doctor here in town in Reno, Nevada, and he also works at the University of Nevada School of Medicine, and you wear a few hats. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself. And then we can go from there. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate you having me today. Yeah, thanks uh, for being on. So, yeah, no problem. Uh, so again, my name is Mordechai Levy. Uh, I'm a practicing geriatrician in town. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, a geriatrician is a, a physician or a doctor that takes care of elders. Uh, and the common things that happen to you as you get older. Uh, so I specialize in all of those things. Uh, I love hanging out with, with my patients and uh, the people that also like to take care of elders. Uh, so that's, that's kind of my practice. Uh, I do work through the University of Nevada School of Medicine uh, up here in Reno. Um, and like Jake said, I, I do a couple other things. One of the other things is I'm currently the medical director of Project ECHO. ECHO is an acronym that stands for Extensions for Community Healthcare Outcomes. Uh, and essentially, it's a telehealth platform that connects providers to providers uh, across the state or across geographical barriers um, or just physical barriers. So a great way to kind of improve healthcare capacity uh, and create a community of learning um, 
through telehealth. Uh, and I'll be talking about a little bit more about that today as far as kind of uh, how ECHO started because ECHO isn't only here in Nevada, here in Reno, uh, it's really all over the world. Uh, and so I'll kind of share with you how it started in New Mexico, uh, then move into kind of more of our, what we're doing here in at Project ECHO Nevada, here in Reno, all of the partners that we have. Uh, and if there's more time after that, we'll kind of move into other things. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I appreciate you saying that. That's actually exactly why I had you on. Project Echo is something I've been participating in as a, just as a clinician practitioner for a couple of years now. And I've, I find a great deal of value and merit. Uh, it's very enriching. And I, th I think more people need to know about this wherever they are, uh, because that's, that's what we aim to do. We aim to you know, bring knowledge and information through this, this medium, this podcast, uh, so that people can enrich their lives and become more educated. So yeah, I mean, tell us, like, how, how did it start and how did it come to Nevada and what's your role and, and all that? Cool, yeah. Um, so I've only been with the, the project, project Echo here in Nevada for, for almost two years. Um, project Echo in Nevada has been around since 2012, uh, but Project Echo was first kind of uh, solidified in that evidence back in 2011 when uh, Dr. Aurora, uh, Dr. Sanjeev Aurora, a hepatologist down at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, uh, essentially started the first ECHO model, um, or first ECHO clinic rather. Uh, that one was dealing specifically with hepatitis C. Uh, so the way Dr. Aurora kind of came up with the idea of an ECHO clinic was uh, he was like a lot of other providers in the early 2000s, had his own hepatitis C clinic. Uh, he was an academic medical center. Uh, his wait lines for his clinic were up to eight months at a time. And so patients uh, with hepatitis C would get worsening liver disease as they waited to see him. Uh, people would die of infections, people would die of bleeding, uh, people's liver was, livers would just get more unhealthy uh, and the variety of things that that can cause. Uh, he felt that if he could just seen these patients sooner, uh, started them on treatment, uh, potentially their outcomes could have been different. Uh, so he was wondering why all of these rural providers in New Mexico were referring to him rather than treating the patients with hepatitis C themselves. Uh, so essentially he went on a rural road trip, went to 21 different rural sites and prisons in New Mexico, found out they just felt uncomfortable with the hepatitis C treatment at that time. Uh, this was before uh, Gilead came out with Harboni, uh, essentially the hepatitis C drug or the hepatitis, hepatitis C class of drugs that we use nowadays that, that work really well. And, uh, in a short time frame uh, and, and have good results. Uh, this was when we were still using interferon, ribavirin. Uh, these medications have a lot more side effects, aren't as well tolerated. Uh, so providers in uh, kind of understandably in rural New Mexico just didn't feel comfortable with the medication uh, and kind of helping treat their patients through, through the cure of this disease. Uh, so what Dr. Rora offered them was essentially what is now known as the ECHO clinic. Uh, he offered them twice, week, twice weekly ECHO sessions uh, where uh, the providers in these 21 different sites in rural New Mexico would log on uh, via Zoom, just like Jake and I are now, uh, and they would essentially hold uh, an echo clinic. The echo clinic had two main parts. Uh, the first part were the rural clinic clinicians would present cases of patients with hepatitis C to the experts that Dr. Aurora had assembled at the University of New Mexico. It is in, that team of experts included himself, a hepatologist, an infectious disease doc, um, a pharmacist, and some other community partners. Uh, and they would, uh, and a psychiatrist too, uh, and they would kind of help counsel through the side effects and the treatment uh, for the patients in rural, uh, in rural New Mexico to kind of get treated as they, the providers help treat them for the hepatitis C. Uh, he was able to publish a paper about this echo clinic in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011, uh, showing that the outcomes for the patients treated by these rural providers participating in the echo clinic were equal to that of patients treated at the university. And so it was kind of a, a land breaking kind of article as far as the potential new model to increase healthcare capacity 
uh, especially when, when distance can be a barrier. So to, to complete the picture, I mean, we, as we have some clinicians who listen to this show too, um, think of like staffing your case with a colleague or with a supervisor if you're, if you're an understudy, an intern or a, you know, whatever. You, um, you go and you present and you go, hey, I got this, this person, this patient who's exhibiting these things. Here's the demographic data. What do you suggest? Well, what, what Echo does is it takes this uh, concept and puts it virtual, right? Um, so we can reach more people through telehealth. And then we have a panel. So it's rather than just like one supervisor staffing cases with a bunch of interns, what you do is you invert that. You got multiple uh, quote unquote supervisors. And that's the, the panel of folks you mentioned. Uh, and and one or two cases will get presented. And, uh, and then people take away information and go implement it in their clinical execution. And, uh, you know make earth better, so to speak. There's also a didactic portion to the ones that I've always attended. Uh, talk, talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly, Jake. I think yeah, you pointed out a really, a lot of the real nice attributes of the ECHO model. Um, you know, not only are you getting that information from the experts, uh, you're also getting information from the other people participating in the ECHO clinic. And so it really creates a community of learning where uh, not only are you learning as somebody kind of presenting the case to the group, uh, but they're also learning from you as you kind of said, uh, share things that have worked well for you, things that haven't worked well, uh, and kind of talking through the pros and cons of, of different approaches. And so uh, Echo, Mo Echo Model really, really creates that community of learning. Um, and then the other one I just kind of want to emphasize before I kind of answer your question more specifically, Jake, uh, is uh, the, the force multiplier. Um, as you kind of learn how to kind of approach that patient with that specific disease process by participating in an echo clinic, uh, you're not only able to apply that knowledge to that one patient that you reviewed with the group, you can apply that knowledge to your whole panel of patients. Uh, and so it really increases healthcare capacity in that respect, uh, because now you don't only know how to treat that one patient with hepatitis C, you can probably approach multiple patients with hepatitis C right. and be successful in their treatment. Right, um, absolutely. Sorry, Jake, what was that? Oh, I just said, yeah, absolutely. I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I appreciate those examples, Jake. I think that just really highlights uh, those two uh, great attributes of the Echo model. Um, because uh, Echo is is really about learning and increasing healthcare capacity, uh, we're also also a CME platform, and so all of our Echo clinics have didactic. Uh, That's really the secondary secondary way that we learn via an Echo clinic. The primary way is talking about cases, uh, but we always want to make sure that we're learning more uh, through the Echo clinic. So our subject matter experts often have a didactic. Uh, dealing with a specific uh, subject, um, you know, in uh, the hepatitis C clinic, they would talk about a different attribute with regards to hepatitis C, whether it be a drug or a side effect, uh, or the hepatitis C virus itself with regards to diagnosis or pathophysiology. Um, in our current echo clinics, it really depends on on the topic at hand and, and what they want to talk about. Um, so the didactics again are are really important. People really come to for that CME uh, initially when they hear about echo, but they often stay for the cases and that community of learning that, that we're trying to develop. And for the listening audience, CME stands for Continuing Medical Education. Most licensed providers have to meet a set of criteria in order to renew their licenses. So you may hear this referred to as a continuing education hours, you know, CEH or continuing education units. Or if you're in the uh, legal field, it's a uh, uh, continuing legal education. Uh, but the idea is that you have to attend a certain number of courses over, uh, you know, a year or two years, however long it is that you need to to renew your license. And then you present that to your licensing board and say, I have maintained my competence. Uh, and this is one of the very excellent ways to do that. So part of didactic for people who don't know that term, uh, what it is, is you get taught, 
uh, it's just a static presentation. Somebody goes through a, a PowerPoint or they, they give some sort of knowledge and then the, the audience participates along. And so there's multiple ways of learning from this. Where else is Echo located? It started in New Mexico. We know it's in Nevada. I've seen people come in from California, Colorado, Idaho into our uh, echo clinics. I don't know if they're just like parachuting in or if they, if they actually have echoes established in those states as well. Yeah, so, um, so Dr. Aurora published this article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. Uh, and after that, echo really caught on like wildfire. You know, we're just right now June 2020. Um, uh, and so right after uh, we heard, uh, New Mexico published the paper, Chicago jumped on quickly after that, hmm. applied it to a, a much different audience than rural New Mexico applied it to treating African-American patients with hypertension, uh, showed good results with that. Uh, Nevada was one of the early adopters. Dr. Evan Klass, uh, he was an endocrinologist here at the university, uh, was initially the person that brought Project Echo Nevada to the university back in 2012 and kind of served as the medical director until, uh, until he retired and I took over that role uh, about two years ago. Um, but uh, after Nevada picked it up again, it just continued to spread like wildfire. Currently, uh, an Echo program is in 48 different states uh, over 30 different countries all over the world. Um, and as ECHO has expanded and, and, and really kind of exploded, uh, it's turned into a movement. Um, and so not only do we kind of have the ECHO model and the ECHO facilitation with the case-based learning with the didactic uh, that kind of Dr. Aurora initially described in his initial paper, it's really turned into uh, creating a bigger community to kind of help disseminate knowledge uh, and increase healthcare capacity just because the world is so big uh, and, and thankfully, in a lot of ways, it's a lot easier to communicate via technology for a lot of us. Still not for all of us, um, and so I think there's still some work to do there. Um, but for a lot of us, we have the ability to communicate uh, via technology much easier, and the ECHO model really, uh, I guess, really highlights that, and its ability to spread all over the world has, has been great. Um, as, you, as this ECHO model has expanded, uh, the University of New Mexico really wasn't able to train all of the different ECHOs like they trained uh, Dr. Class when he started his ECHO in 2012. So they've had to create this concept, what they call super hubs. Uh, so essentially other types of echo networks that can train other echoes to become echoes. Um, and so there's super hubs all over the world. Uh, a couple ones I'll highlight uh, is one in the UK. Uh, this is a super hub uh, specifically dealing with hospice and palliative care. Um, and so essentially symptom treatment and end of life treatment. Uh, and uh, essentially if, we, if you have an echo that you're thinking about starting with that respect, they're a great resource um, to, to look to. Uh, also have a super hub in India, uh, where they deal with a lot of different other things besides the, the things that we deal here with in Nevada, lots of similarities too, but also uh, things like water sanitation. Um, they have echoes on prenatal care. I think we could benefit from those here in Nevada, um, but, but they have those in India. Uh, and so echoes are really diverse all over the country, really uh, do their best to, to fit the needs of the communities that they're in. I I really appreciate you saying that because um, I like to do a humble brag and say that Naga Notes really truly is an international podcast because I've had guests from all over the world and uh, my partner Safiso is in Cambodia and hearing that there are Echo super hubs in the UK and in India, those are two places where I've actually, actually know people. And um, I hope that if they're listening, they, uh, they either, if they don't know about them, they can connect now and, and reach out and augment this. But I think it's really inspirational too, that when we start talking about how moving the needle, leaving a legacy, you know, really creating a, an impact on humanity, 
this is just a guy who saw a need and was like, Hey, I think there's a great way to connect people. Let's do it. And then he researched it, wrote a paper, and then all of a sudden it caught fire and like literally anybody could do that. And that's really, really encouraging. Um, so if you're sitting around listening going, oh, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, impact society, uh, just do something. <laughs> and, uh, chances are really good that if it's, if it works, somebody else will notice. And then, uh, and then the ripple effect, you know, who, who knows how far the ripple effect goes. Have you participated in any of the international echoes or is it just too hard to coordinate across time zones? Um, I, I participated in, uh, us, uh, echoes when I was traveling internationally, uh, ah, not, there you not go. the opposite way. Um, uh, I, I, I do have some connections with other echoes, uh, as kind of part of the training for an ECHO, they have this, it's called Immersion. It's a three-day training that they hold at the University of New Mexico. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to be able to go to that uh, about a year ago uh, and was able to be in a class with, I think, I don't know exactly how many people, um, but it was probably near 100 or so. Uh, and lots of these people were international, uh, coming from uh, the Central America, Australia, um, I think some parts of the Middle East, Russia. Uh, and so it was really this international community coming to Albuquerque and learning more about ECHO and how to kind of run an ECHO clinic and, and what it's all about. Uh, and so uh, able to, to talk a lot about the ECHOs that they're starting. Uh, and so I, and I still kind of follow a little bit as far as getting some emails about, about their current programming. But yeah, I haven't had the opportunity to, to log on to any of the international ECHOs. Um, Logged on to lots of other ECHOs throughout our, our country, though. Uh, and so a big fan of um, a lot of the, essentially a lot of the content that ECHO is able to produce. That's really great. Um, I, it's, it's awesome to hear that. Um, are they always in universities? Are they always anchored by a university? Uh, not always, no. Um, some, in, uh, some healthcare systems have adopted them. Uh, some, I think uh, here and there, some uh, health, health uh, insurance type companies, uh, like quality assurance programs have adopted mm -hmm. the ECHO model. Um, and so often they are associated with the university, uh, but they can just be associated with a, a hospital system or a healthcare network. It's shifting gears a little bit, because uh, I, I mean, I only rub elbows with the, the medical community. I'm not immersed in it like you are, because uh, that's literally your profession and you're, you're a leader within it. I'm curious, you work in gerontology. Uh, I work in mental health. I think mental health touches virtually everything. So, um, you know, I, I try to absorb as much knowledge as I can. I'm wondering in the medical profession, do you see a lot of overlap? I mean, certainly the elderly get all sorts of afflictions, you know, certainly there's a elderly with hepatitis, there's elderly with hypertension. So you could virtually attend anything and, and learn something, right? Or, or, or is it, is it more specific than that? Um, I think, uh, I think there's lots of ways to talk about it. Um, one thing I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention it is that ECHO started in healthcare, um, but there's, now there's ECHOs in lots of different other uh, fields. Um, and so they have, in Wyoming, they have a super hub related to uh, ECHOs with education. Uh, awesome. and so teachers, uh, they're able to connect uh, teachers in rural areas. Uh, here in Nevada, I think we have a similar issue where um, we have lots of schools out in rural Nevada. You know, lots of the teachers are might be the only only teacher or in that grade or that subject uh, for hundreds of miles. And so being able to connect over a, a network like ECHO is really great. Uh, and so ECHO has also been adopted in lots of other fields beyond medicine. So just want to make sure I also mention that. Yeah. And you mentioned water, water treatment or sanitation or whatever it was too. That's, that was fascinating to me. I, did, I think we just kind of breezed over that, but that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so again, your question, I guess, Jake was, 
uh, is it was it specifically about kind of geriatrics or gerontology, or did it have to do with kind of its integration into the echo? Well, I guess um, in the spirit of, I, I think sometimes we get locked into, um, you know, I, I treat traumas and that's my bailiwick, and I, I do, uh, you know, gerontology and that's my bailiwick. But um, I'm here. What I'm my experience has been is that any knowledge is good knowledge, and almost nothing is irrelevant or inapplicable. I just don't know how precise a person in the medical field has to continue to be in uh, his or her own path, so to speak, or, or do you find yourself as a, as a physician branching out and receiving all sorts of information on say emergency care and that kind of thing, or do you, do you mostly just stay, stay within your realm? Um, you know, I really think it depends on the environment that you immerse yourself in. Um, you know, I, one of the things I think about a lot is how fortunate I am to, to be part of Project Echo. Uh, and I'm a geriatrician. I find that the most interesting. I really enjoy taking care of uh, elders. Uh, and, and so that's what I would tend to surround myself with, right? Those people, that type of practice. Uh, and so it's really easy in medicine uh, to kind of silo yourself into your practice. Uh, but with ECHO and also being in academic medicine, you know, I'm exposed to pediatrics, our complex pediatric clinic, uh, exposed to palliative care, exposed to pain management, exposed to first episode psychosis. I know that's a, a big uh, clinic, uh, our Navigate clinic that Jake participates in a lot. Um, you know, those are things that I would never have read about or never learned about. And now I know, I know a lot more than I ever thought I would. Um, and it's been interesting and it's been fun uh, to get to know about those things. Uh, and so kind of further to your point, lots of our clinics are really not based for specialty knowledge. It's really uh, aimed at primary care providers uh, and those kind of providing frontline care uh, to kind of have access to that specialty care. Uh, you know, rather than making that referral uh, for that question, you can ask that question on our ECHO clinic using our case review form. Uh, and then essentially you can, can learn and, and decide whether a referral would be appropriate based on what the experts say, or maybe you can kind of try a couple things before you send that referral out. Um, you know, also kind of reassurance in case you feel like you're missing something, you know, they'll definitely let you know uh, if there's something that, that they think you should be looking at as well. Um, and so just kind of, like Jake said, a great place uh, to, to kind of create that community of learning uh, because sometimes we don't have that in our current work environment. Yeah, and, and in this, the efforts to coordinate care and, and wrap people in with all sorts of services, you know, sometimes you end up sending your patient uh, all over the, the, the map. And this is a great way to bring the map to the patient, so to speak. Um, and, and it's not that we're suggesting anybody practice out of scope. It's that we're trying to create a, we're painting a better picture uh, in which we can make decisions for that person that we're treating. And I, I just, I mean, I find it invaluable and I would invite anybody to, to look up wherever they may be listening, see if you got an echo around you and then to part, start participating in it. Even if you don't think it necessarily applies directly to your profession. I did a school-based mental health one. Uh, that was awesome. I deal with almost no psychosis, uh, people with psychosis, but um, I, I'm finding this fascinating. Uh, it's, it's all just really good. I want to shift gears a little bit and go into uh, your field of expertise, if you will, and have you talk a little bit about gerontology. We've never covered that on on this podcast, I don't, I don't believe. Um, my memory is fading as I get older, though, and it's uh, there's some cobwebs accumulating in my brain. So somebody's like, yes, you did, Jake, back in 2018. <laughs> Forgive me, <laughs> but uh, I know we haven't talked to an MD about it. Help us understand why gerontology is so specific and, and why it's necessary as its own discipline? Sure. Um, so I think the first place I'll kind of go back to kind of the way I introduced myself with, uh, so I'm a geriatrician. I practice geriatric medicine. Uh, gerontology, I often feel like refers to the PhDs 
uh, in, in elder care. Uh, you know, ology is the study of, and then Jero right. is elder. Um, whereas uh, in the kind of medical community, MDs, DOs, uh, you uh, can be, get special, specialization in geriatrics. Um, you can do that through two routes. Uh, everybody goes to medical school and then you kind of choose your residency. Uh, you can either go through uh, internal medicine residency or a family medicine residency uh, and to be eligible for then a geriatric fellowship. Uh, and so I did an internal medicine residency and then followed uh, that up with a geriatric fellowship. Uh, and so kind of now board certified, you got extra tests you got to take just like all the cardiologists, pulmonologists, rheumatologists that kind of specialize in geriatric medicine. Um, and the reason that it's so important and why geriatrics uh, has its own specialty is uh, is really to to emphasize the changes that happen as you age um, and the common things that happen to people as they get older. Um, in an ideal world, we would all age very gracefully, have really kind of an increasing you know functioning at 100% all of our entire lives, uh, be be mentally well, uh, be socially well, be financially well. Um, but lots of those things really aren't a reality for a lot of people. Uh, and those different stresses that get applied to us as we age uh, often end up in different syndromes or common, common sets of symptoms that we see. Uh, and as a geriatrician, uh, it's my specialty to recognize those symptoms and kind of think about the different causes that can cause those and try and find solutions. Uh, and, and when solutions are tough to find because not everything we have control over, uh, we come up with a treatment plan that's really, really centered around what matters to that person. Um, and so with geriatrics, uh, one thing that I'll definitely be sharing is kind of the, an age-friendly health system model of care. Uh, that, that comes, uh, another idea that somebody else came up with that, that I've done my best to adopt, uh, but, but the John A. Hartford Foundation and the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I think along with the, I think, Catholic Hospital Association kind of funded this initial project to help come up with an age-friendly health system. Uh, and I can talk more about that uh, if you'd like, Jake. Um, Absolutely. But that's a little bit about geriatrics. Yeah, I do, because uh, my head is swimming with uh, questions mostly to do with, I guess, what are you seeing that, that are maybe not necessarily more challenging, but maybe more surprising that the, the random person in his 30s or 40s doesn't consider when we think about aging? I mean, when I, when, I, when I think about aging, I think of depleting bodily systems. You know, your endocrine system doesn't produce as much and your hair fades to gray and, you know, like the, the typical things we see with a with a body that's wearing out, but then you mentioned uh, uh, mental health issues and financial issues, and uh, you know life doesn't always go according to plan as we'd like. So, what are some of the things that I guess we should be a little more mindful of in order to align our expectations with reality? Um. So I think I think the way I would I would phrase that question, Jake, is is how does the geriatrician approach those those uh, kind of those essentially that unfairness that sometimes life can, can hold for us. Um, and so that what, in geriatrics, we know we can't, I can't do it by myself. Uh, and so I work on a team of people. Um, I work on a team with a social worker and a pharmacist. Uh, and we often pull in multiple other team members like physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists. Uh, and, we, and we do our best to come up with plans together uh, with each of our areas of expertise. Again, focusing on kind of what matters um, to, to really avoid uh, those those changes, it's really kind of the basics, and your, your audience may be tired of hearing this, I know a lot of people are, but it's really kind of how, what, how we live our lives when we're younger that mm -hmm. determines our aging process. Um, lots of things we can't control, and again, geriatrics is great for supporting you um, as you kind of continue to live with chronic diseases um, or, or kind of start to suffer some of those syndromes or common sets of symptoms that we see when people get older, uh, but making sure you're eating well with your diet um, and making sure you're exercising. 
you know, those are really the things that keep you, keep you functioning. So that uh, homebrew hobby that you and I both share, uh, I should probably reconsider that maybe if I want my liver to keep functioning. Um, yeah, you definitely, uh, too much beer in one day will, will cause issues with livers, you know, uh, you know, not hepatitis C causes issues with the liver. So does alcohol. Yes. Yes. Great, yes, great, indeed. Great Ta- yeah. Yes. If you wouldn't mind talk about that, that health, uh, aging plan, however, however you refer to it and forgive my, yeah, uh, rube. Yeah. Age friendly health plan. Yeah. My, my rube, uh, comments here, uh, cause I'm not in your field. I'm just kind of some, some dude asking questions. Feel free to rephrase as you wish. Oh, no problem, Jake. Again, I just appreciate the opportunity to share some of these ideas with your audience. Um, again, I think these are great ideas that I, I try that that I that I essentially work. That's how I like to work is, is with these great ideas and to kind of be part of this broader community across the world. Um, and so this age-friendly health system, along with Echo, is another opportunity for me to do that to connect with others. Uh, and so an age-friendly health system, they've tried to make it really easy for us uh, to think about it. So they've really broken it down to the four M's. Uh, the four M's are what matters, medications, mobility, and mentation. Uh, mentation, like how you think. Uh, when they talk about mentation in this respect, they talk about uh, dementia uh, or a chronic progressive cognitive decline, uh, delirium, an acute cognitive change, uh, or um, depression or other mental health issues. Because um, all of these are, are very common as people age. Uh, and so again, they break it down, that down into the four M's, what matters, medications, uh, mobility, and mentation. Um, and really the goal is to find out what matters to that, that elder um, or, or that person really, because you can really apply this to all patient populations and all people um, to find out what matters and then use the other three M's, use medication to help support what matters to them, uh, use mobility to help support what matters. Uh, and then again, making sure that their mentation is also supporting what matters. Because uh, as we get older, um, some, you know, and this is often at the very ends of life, uh, you, there's some sacrifices that people have to make for comfort and mentation. Is it fair to say that medication uh, is a very large umbrella that might just cover broadly uh, all diet and not necessarily supplements? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, I think, uh, this, the second time I brought this up that somebody's asked about how nutrition fits into the, the forehand. Um, I, think that's a, I think that's a good way to think about it. I think I'll, I'll, I'll borrow that, Jake. I haven't had a chance to think about it too much. Yeah, um, for, for sure. Steal it all you want. Yeah. Um, but medications, uh, often rather than adding medications, I think think about de-prescribing or taking away medications. Um, you know, medications should really, uh, a cardiologist I used to work with uh, up in Portland uh, shared this kind of concept of medications with me, and I use it all of the time, uh, and I try and share with as many people as I can. And, and I think it fits well into the 4Ms model. Um, a medication to help you live longer, uh, help you live better, um, you know, decrease symptoms, or a medication should kind of decrease events, you know, avoid things like, you know, uh, exacerbations of your heart failure or your chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, and if medications aren't kind of meeting one of those three criteria, you really need to think about is that medication right for you? Right. Especially if it's adding more, uh, more problems than it's resolving, I suppose. And, and we, we see that a lot in the, the mental health world, uh, especially psychotropic medications. How often do you see it in your world where somebody comes in, maybe you meet them for the first time and they've got all these these medicines on board and you have to almost do a, like a, a medication audit of sorts to, to restart or get to a different baseline. Um, and then how hard is that uh, with somebody who's been used to taking something for a really long time that just maybe doesn't benefit them anymore? Sure. I think that, that's a great question. Um, and so, yeah, the use of many medications is a common geriatric syndrome, uh, polypharmacy, 
uh, is kind of often how we describe to describe that. And our goal as geriatricians is kind of finding inappropriate polypharmacy, um, uh, again, where medications aren't meeting one of those three criteria. Uh, and so often uh, we do medication reviews. Uh, and like I said, I work with a pharmacist. And that's a real reason I work with the pharmacist is because I need to kind of lean on their expertise, kind of make sure we're making the best decisions for that person. Um, in approaching a person uh, that, you're, that you're concerned about inappropriate polypharmacy, uh, it really takes a systematic approach in developing a, a relationship with them. Uh, the first thing you always want to do is kind of under, find out what their understanding of that medication is, um, you know, because uh, that's always the best place to start because the worst thing you can kind of do is put your foot in the mouth and make some assumptions. Uh, often there's multiple treatment plans and lots of ways to kind of get to a certain way. Uh, and our goal as providers is just to find out how they got there uh, to see kind of what the current assessment is of that medication. You know, is it helping? Is it not helping with what we thought it was going to help with? Uh, and then if it is accomplishing those goals, you know, is there a better way to accomplish those goals or is this the way we want to continue? Um, and then if it's not accomplishing those goals, you know, how can we safely get off this medication uh, and, and find a way to accomplish that goal? Um, and sometimes it's not with the medication. Sometimes there's other avenues uh, such as therapies uh, or, or even cognitive behavioral therapy, um, uh, utilizing other specialists that, that can be useful. You bring up talk therapy there. Uh, how often is that used in your realm with the older population uh and and do do you find a do you find people nowadays are a little more amenable to it um because of the emergence of you know the popularity of mental illness uh treatment and mental health care or is it is there still like this generational resistance to you know going into going into counseling um yeah, so I guess the first thing with that question is I imagine somebody's looked at that question and, and maybe published some information. I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I know in my practice, anecdotally, um, so just kind of my opinion, uh, one, of, one of the people I work with is a, a, the social worker. She's also a psychotherapist. Um, and so uh, utilize her all of the time uh, in that setting. Uh, almost always offer it if I feel like any of the, um, if I think it'll be useful or we think it'll be useful rather. Uh, and so all of the time, as far as people being open to it, um, I think there's a big bias that I deal with as a provider. I think people are often more opt to say yes to me than to no, especially if it's my recommendation. Um, and so I think, you know, so I think most people tell me yes from, from my experiences, you know, a handful of people tell me no, but when I recommend it, most people end up saying yes. Um, do they follow through? Every time I'm working. Do, do they follow through? Um, or is it like yes in the office? So in the office, it's harder for me to, to, to know. Um, I've had lots of recent job changes. And so I, I've just recently had to kind of be referring more people to psychotherapy. And, um, and so haven't had a, so I can't really answer that question. Uh, in my other, in my kind of other consult job uh, that I have right now, uh, people are following through. That's good to hear. Um, I think for a long time, there was a, there was a little bit more of a resistance from the older population, but I know for, for us at Zephyr, we're starting to see a little bit more of an uptick in, older people attending counseling than we did five years ago when we founded. Um, I think that there's, there's, I don't know what the change is, but it's almost like people are realizing that it's, it's okay to examine one's long held beliefs and, you know, especially if they're, if they're in misery or pain and it's like, well, I kind of want to get out of this pain and maybe I need to, maybe I need to take a look at some habits. Um, that's really, that's, that's, that's cool. What are your list your jobs? Cause it sounds like you, you're, you're actively practicing. You got this team. Uh, where is that? Where does that take place? And then what else do you do? Um, yep. So right now uh, I do outpatient geriatric consult. 
to the UNR Med uh, Sanford Center of Aging. Okay. Uh, and so we, we do consults where we work on that interdisciplinary team that I mentioned with a social worker uh, and a pharmacist. Uh, we also have a medical assistant that works with us, and then we also have to have a team of learners, like a geriatric fellow or a pharmacy resident or another type of resident uh, working with us. Uh, and essentially, we see patients in about an hour and a half visit where we do an interdisciplinary assessment, uh, ask a lot of questions, uh, then make some recommendations at the end of the at the end of the visit, and share those recommendations with their primary care provider or the referring provider uh, for them to discuss with the with the patient and their family. Um, we, we cover a lot of things, have lots of access to community resources. Uh, you know, and again, you know, I'm the, the MD uh, on some of the assessments. Um, I work with two other MDs on the assessments as well. Um, we kind of rotate the schedule. Uh, and, uh, you know, often, you know, I think we always add an important part to the visit, but sometimes we're not the main part. You know, sometimes a lot of those other financial or social things are, are really what's affecting somebody's health the most. And we spend most of the time talking about that. It's a it's a really comprehensive system, and I'm I was very surprised to hear you say it's an hour and a half long appointment. Uh, that that really is very rare, I think, these days, or at least people's perception of it is rare, uh, is that it's rare. How, I guess, I'm trying to I'm struggling to phrase this question the right way. Um, I don't know that many people have the advantage of of uh, going to a doctor's office and getting that type of wraparound care. Um, I know it's different at the university settings, there's more resources and so forth. How do we make that happen more often? How do we, how do we get people together on a team approach uh, in this, this current climate where, you know, there's insurance billing concerns and that kind of thing? Um, I think, I think if you ask for it, people will make it. I think that's, you know, I think people need to know that this is an option and if this is the option that people want, um, you know, you need to let your providers know, um, you know, uh, and, and, and talk to them. Um, I'm, I'm a really kind of grassroots kind of guy with that, with that type of uh, massive change that you're talking about, Jake. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a fee-for-service system built into uh, our insurance company, and uh, it's really tough to, you know, uh, when we get those, uh, the three of us kind of experts in there, you know, uh, at times that's, you know, a medical degree, uh, a pharmacy, <laughs> you know, a uh, doctoral pharmacy degree. And then uh, at times we also have a, a PhD social worker in there. Um, and so it's a really bunch of really, really smart people uh, in a room that you have access to and then their knowledge and, and kind of their area of expertise. Um, and so that can, and so it takes a lot of extra support for that um, and understanding the value and the potential for cost savings um, and high value care. Um, I think as we focus on it, I think focusing on high value care uh, that's offering you the service that you're looking for is kind of should be the the focus of the grassroots effort. If if, if again an hour and a half visit uh, for with these three disciplines is something that people want. So really, what we need to do is just start doing it. I need to reach out to the. I mean, we're in a provider shortage now in Nevada, and almost everybody has three or four jobs. But um, I need to reach out to people like you and other um, professionals in different disciplines, and just say, hey, uh, would you mind spending some time one day a week or something at Zephyr Wellness to to hang out and as people want to come through, we can staff or something. I don't. I just literally don't know how that would work. As busy as everybody is, um, but that's that's it's got to start there. It's got to start like you said. Grassroots is a great way to describe it. Um, somebody just has to start doing it instead of waiting to be uh, waiting for the system to change because it won't. We'll have to be the ones to change it. 
How yeah, is it? I mean, oh, and, and as we've done this, there's been more tools that that our that our leadership has been able to utilize to increase our ability to to, to fund um, and and pay for this. Um, and so it's it's really about being creative about that too, and and communicating with you know like, hey, I'm doing it this way. We're successful for all of these reasons, um, and potentially they they would be more open to to funding a new method of care. Um, you know, essentially coming up with a new service that you're providing for a new fee. Um, right. One thing that uh, that we utilize a lot is chronic care management. Um, and so the ability to uh, kind of offer telephone visits in between visits to kind of make sure that you understand the complexities of all your providers, the things that were said in your last visit, um, be able to kind of have an easier access to the to that kind of specialty care network of your physician or your pharmacist, whoever you need to talk to to kind of answer those questions. Um, yeah. So that's something that everybody has access to as far as being able to enroll people in chronic care management uh, through Medicare. Um, and so um, lots of patients, you know, maybe that would be one thing to do. Start asking like, hey, can you refer me to chronic care management? I think it might be helpful. Yeah. Um, one of the fights you mentioned Medicare uh, is that federally marriage and family therapists and licensed professional counselors cannot bill Medicare. And that's that's been ongoing since like 2000. And um, so that's a frustration that needs to be solved as well. But I, I never heard of chronic care management before. Uh, is that accessible to, to anybody? How does that, how's that work? Yeah, so if you have Medicare, um, then uh, you have the ability to be to access chronic care management. As far as if your uh, primary care provider has a chronic care management program, you'll have to ask them um, to see if they, if they do. Uh, there's a couple of uh, most, uh, I think Sanford Center might be kind of unique in this respect where we don't really take over the primary care aspect, but can still offer the chronic care management uh, portion. Um, but I know lots of other primary care provider clinics uh, offer chronic care management. And I would always say you want to stick with your, you know, your general community of providers, along, you know, especially if you trust them and have a relationship. Um, and so I would encourage you to ask your providers first. Um, but if that's not an option, uh, the Sanford Center does have a, a chronic care management program that we're enrolling patients in. Uh, share a little bit about the Sanford Center for Aging. I don't know that a lot of people know that it even exists. Uh, it's been around for a long time, uh, but also what it does. Um, yeah, so, uh, I'll do my best to describe it. Um, there's a, the director of the Sanford, he's uh, Peter Reed, uh, he's a PhD in education. And so he's been the, the director of the Sanford Center for longer than, I, than I've been at the university. And so he's, the, uh, and the Sanford Center has been around even longer, uh, initially came from an endowment, um, uh, years ago, just to kind of help make sure that, uh, the University of Nevada Arena always has a place where, uh, geriatric education and geriatric care can happen. Uh, so it's really a really great thing. Um, the Sanford Center has grown into lots of different things. Uh, I think the things that are most notable to me, um, uh, as far as kind of a community standpoint, is their wellness programs that they have, uh, diabetes prevention programs, uh, some exercise programs. Uh, some of these things are in flux with, with uh, the current pandemic and COVID-19, uh, but in general, those are uh, lots of community resources uh, that people can participate in to kind of improve, improve their general health. Um, and so uh, those are just kind of a couple with the diabetes prevention program, uh, fall prevention classes. Uh, I think they have some pain uh, education classes as well. Um, and there's also a big research component and big educational component for the, for this, uh, essentially for the community in the state too. Um, the Sanford Center was the recipient uh, and Peter Reed was the recipient of a five year, $3.2 million grant, uh, the Geriatric Workforce Enhancement uh, Program grant uh, to essentially uh, develop uh, an educational model uh, and increase geriatric care services for the state. And so Peter's, I think, come up with a great plan to, to improve education uh, throughout the state. And we, are, we keep kind of rolling out a plan 
uh, including lots of different healthcare systems and lots of different healthcare centers. Um, and so if you're a healthcare center out there and you're interested, uh, you know, let us know. Uh, just feel free to reach out to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it won't be anything uh, right away, but, you know, I think it's always good to talk about. So we want to hear more about that. That's awesome. That's super encouraging. Thanks for sharing the invitation. Uh, share a little bit about COVID-19, if you would. You work with the vulnerable, the most vulnerable population, I guess, as, as most people have um, determined that and, you know, people with pulmonary issues and, you know, underlying uh, health concerns. But but the elderly population has is, is really been hit the hardest uh, and they, they come with the highest level of risk. How's that affected you and your, your client base and um, what advice and feedback do you have to today? I know it's changing daily. But. Um, you know, I think I would echo a lot of what our health experts have said. Um, I think the biggest thing is to, to always act like you're, like you're infected, um, whether you're young or an elder or, um, or, or whoever you are, um, you know, and always kind of respect other people. Wearing a mask is about protecting you from other people. Uh, and so that's what elders really need from, from us right now is us to think about them and have our actions kind of be more to benefit them than they are ourselves uh, if we're younger. Um, and so that would be the main thing that I think about is, you know, lots of the things that we're doing aren't necessarily uh, for your own good all the time, uh, but for the, the general good of us all, and that will help you. Um, and especially with our elders, because they're, they're all of our stories, they're all of our knowledge, they're all, all of our experience. Um, and, you know, we, we've lost a lot of that over the last four months. You know, we lose a lot of that all the time, uh, but it's been accelerated. Um, and it's really unfortunate um, and, and kind of making sure that you're still kind of staying in contact. Um, you know, we talk about social isolation. I really like to think about physical distancing, especially with elders, uh, making sure that you're not socially isolating them. You still want to talk to them. Uh, you still want to communicate with them. Uh, I know with my grandpa, uh, he had just moved into uh, independent living or assisted living uh, right before COVID-19 started. Uh, and, they, and he was really interactive, lots of activities, um, and he was kind of adjusting to it. Uh, but when COVID-19 happened, everything went on lockdown. You know, he has to spend all of his time in his room. Uh, you know, if he left, if he left his room, he got to stay in quarantine even longer. Um, no more like communal dining. And so it's a really big change. A lot of kind of uh, an epidemic of isolation and loneliness that was already happening in our elders. Uh, COVID-19 really made it worse. Uh, and so one thing that I did was I, I bought a, you know, luckily I was able to afford it, but I got it an Echo Show. Uh, I don't have any kind of uh, invested interest that I'm aware of in Amazon, uh, but uh, being able to have those video conferencing systems with them and just being able to drop in on them uh, was really helpful. And so lots of other options through Google, uh, probably through Apple too, um, and lots of other like options, even Zoom, uh, like, like Jake and I are talking on now, um, just to make sure you're staying connected with your, with your grandparents, your loved ones, um, and, what, and whoever else is in your life. Is he local? Are you able to see him physically yet, or is he elsewhere? He's in Texas. Okay. That's where I grew up. I see the Cowboys helmet behind you. Yeah, Bill Cowboys. Are we going to have a football season? Uh, my guess is some kind of football season. Yeah, I mean, probably not college though. Yeah, I mean, college. You know, I think. I mean, I'm a you know I'm a big advocate. Let the players uh, <laughs> let the players decide what's best for them. Uh, they're the ones putting themselves at risk. So yeah. uh, you know, if they if they want to do it for us, then I appreciate that. But if they don't, I understand. That's true. That's true. It's entertainment, right? Yeah. Um, you're really passionate about this population. How did you get drawn to it? Geriatrics. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of always wanted to work with elders. Uh, real close to my grandparents growing up. Grandma was real sick. Uh, mm -hmm. Dialysis in a wheelchair. 
So spent a lot of time taking care of her. That was it. Wow. That's, that's the, but maybe the simplest story I think I've ever heard of anybody who is in a profession. <laughs> it's like one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> it's very, very, I mean, sometimes that's where our deepest passions arise, right? The, the simplest explanation. So let's talk about homebrewing real quick. I'm mindful of the time. I want to wrap up, but uh, I don't think I've ever discussed homebrewing on this podcast either. So we're, we're breaking ground all over the place. Uh, geriatrics and homebrewing. How long have you been brewing? Um, yeah. So, you know, like most people, I probably don't spend as much time on my hobby as I'd like to, but I was able to get another batch going during coronavirus. So I, um, you know, silver lining, uh, unfortunately, lots of, lots of, not so, lots of gray. Um, but, uh, I think I've been doing it now for a few years. Uh, I think probably my, I think probably my wife, I'll give her credit. Shout out to, shout out to my wife. Thank you. Uh, bought me a homebrewing kit, uh, and a couple recipes. Uh, and so ever since then, I've just kind of continued to buy recipes, get out at least one beer a year uh, with regards to kind of getting it done, do five gallons at a time, keep it real simple. Um, you know, often wait for a day where I have the house to myself just because, you know, I, I, have, I, don't, have a, I don't have a great large house and so it takes up a lot of our space uh, when I'm brewing um, just because things sit there for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, but, but really enjoy it. You know, I think all of my family that I share my beer with, I think that's one way I save my liver is. Uh, you know, I have a first couple, make sure I did the sanitation prop appropriately, you know, don't give myself any, anything bad. Uh, and then I share, and then I start sharing with the rest of my family. That really is the best part, isn't it? Giving it away. Uh-huh, People think you're doing some sort of wizardry in your, in your kitchen. And uh, you're like, no, it's, it's really just a different kind of cooking. Yeah. And I mean, the first one was, you know, the first one was the most mess, you know, I made a, made a big mess, but after that, you know, I'm a pretty, uh, in general, you know, um, it's real easy. So it only takes, you know, probably a total of 10 hours. Yeah, yeah. There's just lots of time in between. Do you you bottle or keg? I assume you're bottling, huh? Yeah, I bottle, yeah. So I have some sugar at the end and uh, have to wait a couple weeks for the carbonation to to happen. Do you have a favorite style? Uh, I'm a big IPA guy. uh, Me too. uh, Indian pale ales. Um, Right now I have a a black IPA. Yes, I I just finished a keg of black IPA. It was amazing. Cool. Nobody makes black IPAs anymore. Um, not too many, yeah. yeah it was like, they have a lot. It was, it was like a fad for a hot minute. And then, uh, so do you shop at Brew Chatter or Reno Homebrewer? Um, so, yeah. So I, I did a lot of online shopping initially. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but but uh, Reno Homebrew uh, is, is my local local choice. They were the originators. They came around in like 1991, I want to say, and really uh, started the started the whole craze. And then it really took off several years ago. It's fun to talk home brewing. Yeah, lots of fun. Yeah. All um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to make some cheese the other the other week too. Um, that didn't go as well. Um, make sure you don't use pasteurized milk. I have not endeavored in that, but I could see how pasteurization would prevent cheese from being made. Yes, I could. I could see that. That rookie mistake. <laughs> do you find that your uh medical background and all that science helps or hinders you in making beer and cheese um i think it helps of course it helps it helps with everything well sometimes you know you get too into it and it like you know i want it to be an artistic hobby but it, i've now turned it into a neurotic science experiment and it's no fun anymore oh, over, um, overthinking things yeah no yeah i guess yeah thankfully i'm not blessed with too much ocd in that respect. Um, uh, no, I think it's been helpful. I mean, mostly it was helpful with using the, 
the equipment that I need to use, like the packaging equipment and the thermometer and, and kind of knowing how, you know, and getting a better idea of how things heat because uh, you have to do some heating in the beginning. Uh, and if you don't, and if you don't kind of keep in mind the need to kind of evenly distribute the heat as things heat up, uh, especially with things where you're trying to get a very specific temperature, uh, it makes things much more difficult. Um, and so I think in that respect, it was very helpful to have experienced that uh, in my education. If, if you're listening to this and you're thinking about homebrewing and now you're talking to or listening to us talk and you're going, uh-oh, evenly spread heat. I don't know if this is for me. Don't think that that's, uh, don't let that dissuade you. It's, uh, if you can cook, you can homebrew. If you can't cook, you can still homebrew. There's two things yeah, I, I tell people. Oh, you can't. So you're brewing fine. So that there, there we go. There's my evidence. But uh, it, I always tell people there's only really two things you can screw up. One is sanitation, which you mentioned. And two is if you splash your beer when you're transferring it, it will oxidize and it will taste like cardboard. But otherwise, it's pretty easy. Well, um, we booked this for an hour. We're approaching an hour. I sure appreciate your time. Um, I, I've been doing this for the last few shows. Uh, one thing I ask uh, the guests to do is give uh, give a takeaway to the audience, some uh, something you you find useful or that you think other people can apply in their life or or just an interesting joke, uh, but some, some takeaway that you want to give an exhortation, but I want to leave that open to you. What, what would you send our audience off with? Cool. Um, so I, so I thought of this during the podcast, during something that you said, uh, so I thought I, I, I like this. I think, I think I'll uh, credit this to Aristotle. Um, and I think really important and kind of nowadays and just to kind of think this, keep this at the front of your mind anytime you interact with anybody, no matter who they are. Um, you know, there, there's no uh, man or woman out there or, um, uh, that is so ignorant that I cannot learn something from them. Amen. That, uh, that is true. And I appreciate that because it's a reminder for all of us to stay humble and, uh, and continue to absorb so that our egos don't get in the way. Well, thank you, Dr. Levy. Uh, if you want to learn more about Project Echo, where would you send people? Um, so yeah, I'll give you the link. Um, it's med.unr.edu uh, slash echo. Um, and that'll take you straight to our website. Uh, I'll give uh, Jake the link too. And I think Jake already has the link to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, to, I just to wanted to you to say it. So if I can go next to the, the, uh, in the show notes for the description, I think that would be great. Yeah, for sure. And we'll, we'll definitely mention uh, Sanford Center for Aging. I think, I don't know when that was founded, but it's been at least, around at least as long as I started undergrad, which was 1996. So um, 25, 30 years, maybe um, doing good work. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you. And on behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, I wish you all great mental wellness. Catch you later.